0: I invite you to join with me in the tremendous privilege of opening your copy of the scriptures to the 34th psalm. The 34th psalm, a psalm which to my recollection I have never heard preached before and have never preached myself. And I have enjoyed the study of God's word and the challenge to my heart to rest and trust in God alone in time of desperate need and affliction, or in times of prosperity. We will be reading the 34th Psalm as we go throughout, but many famous songs are written on the basis of a very real personal experience of the author. Some of you may have a favorite song or even a favorite hymn, and you know the story behind the song. Psalm 34 is one of those songs that definitely has a story to put it in context. If you look at the top of the psalm, the superscript, where it tells us that this is a psalm of David when he disguised his sanity, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed And you may also know that this has a sister psalm, the 56th psalm, which David records as being written as he reflected on the treatment by the Philistines when he was captured upon his first entering Gath. So the story of David, his personal experience is the basis for the writing of this psalm. I, I don't want us to look all the way through 1 Samuel 21, but let me just repeat as a story the circumstances in David's life which led to the writing of this psalm. What do we know about David's life after he was anointed as the king-elect after Saul? Well, things began well, well enough. He was in the ministry of Saul. He played music for Saul. But eventually, Saul started playing this game called Pin the Spear on David. Do you remember that game? David didn't like that very much. And the hostility, hostility between Saul as he fell away from the Lord grew more and more towards God's man, David. To make matters more complicated, David's best friend on this earth was the king's son. And David and Jonathan had just parted in bitter tears, and David is fleeing from Saul and the army of assassins that, ha- that Saul has pursuing David every day. That is the context of David's decisions that we see in 1 Samuel 21. Imagine if you were David, and you flee the city by yourself, no entourage, no guards, no friends, just you. And he goes to the priestly city of Nob. And the priest there comes out, obviously very nervous, because why is the king anointed here by himself? That should not happen. So he comes out, David, why are you here? And what does David do? He lies through his teeth. This is a desperate man, and he is taking things into his own accord. He is working for himself. He is becoming sinfully self-reliant. And he tells the priest a story, and boy, is it a story. And he gets provisions from the priest, the showbread, the consecrated bread for the priest's and the Lord graciously provides for David in his sinful self-reliance. But while he's telling the story, he notices someone the scripture calls Doug or Doeg. But Doug sounds right to me. No offense to any dogs out there. Doug the Edomite, which David, I think, knows is not going to go well. Because later it says, he says, I knew that Doeg would report to Saul on my being there. So what does David do? He knows hostility is going to come. He makes up another lie. Hey, priest, do you... Do you, do you have Ahimelech a weapon for me? And what does Ahimelech say? Oh, we have a weapon. And it's a pretty impressive weapon. In fact, it is the sword of the giant Goliath whom you slayed. Would you like it? And in, I just imagine the manliest voice that David can, says, can say, There is none like it. Give it to me. And he departs. Nob. And where does he go? Of all places, where does David go? With the sword of Goliath strapped to his back, he goes into the very city of the champion he just had defeated. What is he thinking? Perhaps the enemy of my enemy is my friend at this moment. But whatever happens in David's mind, or what would happen in David's mind, did not happen in reality. And there we have Psalm 56, where David is captured, imprisoned by Akish, as it's said in 1 Samuel. His title of Abimelech is in Psalm 34, and he is tormented, he is tortured, and David cries out to God for deliverance. So when he has an audience with the king, what does David do? Does he tell the truth? No, the, the superscript of Psalm 34 told us he disguised his sanity. What is David doing? He plays a trick on the king and very humorously we see in first Samuel, the king says, uh, guys, do I not have enough crazy people in my kingdom that you brought me another crazy person? There's, there's no, I'm paraphrasing here. There's no glory in killing this man. Get him out of here. And through sinful self-reliance, God is still gracious to David to let him escape. And at some point after that deliverance, he pens Psalm 34. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Psalm, 1 Samuel 22 tells us there is a fallout. There is a consequence due to, to David's sinful self-reliance. Do you remember what happens? Doeg the Edomite says, yeah, I saw David. He was at the priestly city of Nob. So Saul calls for Ahimelech. And you know the story. Eighty-five priests to Jehovah, to Yahweh, are slaughtered by Saul Through Doeg. It's a grim scene. And David acknowledges later when one of the the one surviving descendant comes and says, I knew that when I saw Doeg, he he would rehearse this to Saul, and I am responsible for this slaughter. Imagine being David at this point in your life. And we we go on, he's hiding in the caves in the wilderness. He has the dregs of society come to him. And he is just continuously chased after by King Saul and his army of assassins. And Psalm 34 shows us what a desperate man is thinking in this time, as he reflects on God's deliverance despite his sinful self-reliance, as he reflects on how am I going to live in this desperate time of uncertainty and affliction moving forward? And this Psalm is so instructive for us of how we should be living in desperate times of affliction. Would you pray with me, and then we will go into the outline and unpack this text. Father, thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to read your word, to hear what you have inspired for us to see and to hear. And I pray, Lord, that you'd open our eyes to understand and to see great and marvelous things which you've prepared for us. Lord, I pray that you would minister to my brothers and sisters or to anyone who may be hearing this who is quite possibly living in the lowest point of their lives, as David perhaps was, to those who are reflecting on how they took circumstances into their own hands and tried to be you while navigating through them, for those who are reflecting upon the the forgiveness that you have granted when we have done that and how graciously you served us and were for us despite our pride and our rebellion and how you brought us back, how you delivered us from our circumstances and from our bondage to sin. And Lord, may you encourage your saints this, morning, this evening. And Father, if there is anyone here this evening or who is listening to this at any point who has not placed their faith and trust in you alone through Christ Jesus. May this evening be the night that they fear you and not their circumstances, and that you would gloriously save them. Because of Christ, we ask this all. Amen. The 34th Psalm teaches us that in desperate times, number one, in your desperation... Don't lose your worship. Don't lose your worship. And the outline that I've provided for you in your song booklet has four main points for us, but I will also give you some sub points if you want to mark them down, if you're keen on taking notes. In your desperation, don't Lose your worship. Listen to what David says during this desperate time. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. In your desperation, don't lose your worship. And then first of all, keep your worship And forgive me for this, cohortative. And no, I will not spell it for you. Keep your worship cohortative. Now that's just a shameful use of the Hebrew verb here that David says. He is exhorting himself. This is a cohortative of personal resolve. Though I don't feel like it, I will worship you, Lord. Because worship is easy when life is easy. Worship is easy when our circumstances are good. Worship is easy when we're convinced that God is worthy of worship. But when life is hard, we are really tempted to say, God, if you were good, this wouldn't be happening to me, and you're not worthy of my worship. Isn't this the same argument that Job used to the Lord? Or that God, or that Satan used to the Lord regarding Job? Well, of course he loves you, Lord. You've planted a hedge around him. So what does God do? He gives Satan freedom. And what is Job's testimony? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. David is resolved to bless the Lord, even though his circumstances say, I don't feel like it. We need to remind ourselves of this often, beloved. Our worship is not about us. Our worship is not about our feelings. Our worship did not start tonight by saying, how do I feel? Okay, I feel like this. I'll put that level of emphasis into my worship. If that's our worship basis, it will always be about us. It will always be sentimental. It'll always be schmaltzy. It'll always be emotional in the wrong way. But it's about God. What has God Done. You know what? I'm here this morning, I'm here this evening, and I don't really feel like it, so remind me of my great God and what He has done. Remind me that even though I'm a wretch and a worm, I can sing praise to the King of Heaven because through Him I am ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, and evermore His praises I will sing. It's about God. You know this, but we have to resolve to do this. Keep your worship cohortative, but also keep your worship God-centered. I want you to look at verses one through three again and notice how many times David says or addresses the Lord. It is all about the Lord. You look at verses four through seven. You see it all the way through those verses. In the Lord, I saw the Lord of the Lord David is intentionally taking his eyes off of himself and his circumstances and placing them on the Lord. Very simply here, when you are filled with circumstances that are not ideal, do you find yourself staring at the circumstances and just glancing at the Lord? Can I encourage you to reverse that? Gaze long on the Christ and glance at your problems. The hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Part of this is trusting God. Part of this is trusting God's goodness. Again, it's hard to keep centered on him when you're doubting his goodness. But go to the word, focus on him. Don't let your faithful worship break down by holding God accountable to keep a promise that he never made to you. God, you took this away from me. How can you be good? I never promised you that. But So often that's how we lose our sight on worship. Keep your worship God-centered, but keep your worship also, letter C, continual A desperate person's worship is continual. It should be continual. And this is a reminder to us. We have access to God 24-7, 365. A desperate person's worship is not reserved for Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening. Fix your eyes on the Lord day and night. It's not just for this auditorium setting or any worship setting. At your lowest point, David says, my soul or his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Make it continual. And then lastly, letter D, under point one. Keep your worship congregational. You can't miss the congregational element to this desperate type of worship. David says, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it, and therefore they will rejoice with me. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Genuine praise is infectious, is it not? When you hear in good news... You have to take part of it. When you have experienced something good, you have to let your praise come to fruition where you tell someone about it so that they can rejoice with you. That's what David is saying here. Must make your praise and your worship, even when you are at the most desperate point, even when you don't feel like it, you must come to the body and choose to praise God with them. As an application for our world today, this I would argue is why podcasts and video streaming of services just is not going to cut it for us. You are hard-pressed to fulfill Colossians 3:16 and Hebrews 10:19 through 25 by doing church at home. Your praise must be congregational. You must bear fruitful praise. It must mature and ripen and come out of you so that others can eat it and be blessed by it and be nourished by it. Keep your worship congregational." That is completely opposite of what we tend to do when we're desperate, isn't it? God, you are not good. You are not worthy to be praised. I'm staying away from Christians, and I'm not going to tell people my problems. And I'm not going to be able to tell people how good you are because I'm not trusting you. So do the opposite of how you feel. Keep your worship when you are desperate. Secondly, in your desperation, don't lose your witness. Don't lose your witness. Look at verses 4 through 10 with me. Just verses 4 through 7. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. In your desperation, don't lose your witness. And in verses 4 through 7, witness of God's deliverance. Witness of God's deliverance. David is telling us his story here. God graciously delivered him out of the hand of the Philistines. Do you have a story? Can you tell people your story? Are you ready to tell people your salvation story? Are you ready to tell people your story of how God is providing for you? Are you ready to tell people your story of how God is helping you to conquer sinful indulgence and sinful desires? Are you willing to confess your brokenness to people? so that they can see the deliverance of God. David is being transparent here. David's bearing his soul. David is telling us how awful he's been. David is showing us how undeserving he is. The scriptures have recorded for us his faults, and he is testifying not of his own goodness, but of God's deliverance. Are you, like David, willing to minimize yourself so that God can be magnified? A tough question that I've been asking myself this week because I'm sure a lot of you are like me. People, people need a hero, don't they? People need a hero. The Marvel Comic Universe demonstrates that people want heroes. In 2019, the Marvel Comic Universe movie Avengers Endgame grossed 28 billion dollars at the box office worldwide people were desperate to go see how the Avengers would save the world now we know that our hope and trust are not in fictional comic book characters but do you represent yourself to people as the hero people don't need you as the hero People don't need to hear about how good you are at self-sustaining your life. People need to hear your witness of God's deliverance in your life. Don't look at how good I am, look at how terrible I am, and yet God's grace to deliver me anyway. David is giving a very powerful testimony. In, In verse number seven, he is telling us that his deliverance was not random, it was not luck. It was not his stars aligning. But God himself delivered David. Did David deserve to be delivered? Tell me. No. Do you deserve to be delivered? But God does. It's a witness of his deliverance. Tell people of your experience of the goodness of God. Do you even have an experience of God's goodness in your life? Do you have testimony of answered prayer? Do you have testimony of deliverance? And and I'm not arguing here for faith to be completely based on experience, although The next point, I think, tells us it's important. Don't just witness of his deliverance, but also witness of his delight. Look at verses 8 through 10. Witness of his delight. David goes on to say, Oh, taste and see what I know. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Any atheist worth his salt can argue with a Christian regarding the facts or their interpretation of the objective facts and the truth. But how can they argue about the testimony of a life who has been transformed? How can they argue against a person's true joy in the most despicable circumstances possible? People should look at us and say, you shouldn't be serving that God. If your God was good, he wouldn't let this happen to you. But... You are joyful, so what is this? What are you you experiencing that I haven't? Witness of His delight. And you can argue with a person until you and they are blue in the face, but until they place their faith and trust and taste and see that the Lord is good, they will not find a refuge in this world during times of affliction. So witness of God's deliverance and witness of God's delight. And while you're witnessing, show joy. Make sure your life matches this testimony. Verse 10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, even the kings of the beasts. Even they will lack and suffer hunger. At times, everybody wants to be the king of the beast. And even if they're struggling, I'll get my way out of it. I'll find my next meal. But you must humble yourself and let God feed you. People may never believe, but that's not our responsibility. You lift up Jesus, you lift up Christ, and God will draw people to himself where they will taste and see the goodness of him. Witness of his delight, witness of your deliverance. Thirdly, verses 11 through 14. In your desperation, don't lose your worship, don't lose your witness, and don't lose your fear. In your desperation, don't lose your fear. David switches gears in a sense here from a song to an exhortation to a message. He becomes the teacher. Verse 11, come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. In your desperation, don't lose your fear. And this is the wisdom of fear. Now, okay, what is is David getting at here? Fear is not the issue. Everybody fears. Everyone is afraid at times. But David reminds us, it's not about whether you will fear, it's about whom you will fear, or what you will fear. Fear the Lord. Over in Psalm 56, the sister psalm to this passage, you can turn there if you like. David confessed his improper fear at the time of his desperation. He confessed why he did what he did. It was because he had improper fear. There was no wisdom in this fear. It was foolish. And he says for us in, chapter, in Psalm 56 in verses 3 and 4, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, Yahweh. In God whose word I praise, in God I will put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? David got there, but David didn't start there. The wisdom of fear. I will fear God. And I will choose not to fear my circumstances. Because if you fear your circumstances, you will not fear God. You will choose to become God and you will take matters into your own hands like David did. David is confessing this. He's saying, don't do what I did, but fear the Lord. Don't lose your fear, the wisdom of fear. But what does the fear of the Lord look like? We can all quote some verses in Proverbs, which tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But what does it look like? David goes on in verses 12 through 14 to show us what the fear of the Lord looks like. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace And pursue it. I'm calling this the wisdom of fidelity. The wisdom of fear and the wisdom of fidelity. The fear of the Lord is to be faithful in obedience to God. That is the fear of the Lord. Not to fear your circumstances and thus rebel and take the wheel, but to fear God and faithfully obey his commands. Verse 12 is is a general principle that the Lord had promised to Israel as a reward for righteous behavior. And David confessed, I tried to be the one that extended my days. I took matters into my own hands. I tried to preserve my life and things did not go as planned. Fear the Lord and trust yourself to him. Verse 13, David tells us to do what he did not do in his moment of desperation. Keep your tongue from evil. Do good. Do good. Do not lie like I did. Do not bring forth evil through the consequences of my lies. David had some experience with this. Verse 14, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. We so often are so desperate for peace that we seek it ourselves, but we leave a wake of destruction in our path because we take the the wheel from the Lord. And David is testifying this, don't be like me Don't fear your circumstances, but fear the Lord. We see that David learns this. What happens a short while later in 1 Samuel? David has Saul right at his fingertips. And what does David choose to do? I will not fear man. What can man do to me? I will fear the Lord, and I will not touch the Lord's anointed. I will not play God. I will let God deal with his servant, Saul. This passage of wisdom very much reminds me of Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. We won't read it, but it's an experience we all have faced at times. You have horrible things done to you. A person continues to mistreat you to the degree where you are really struggling with Christian love for them, And eventually we all get to the point where we say, okay, God's not doing it, I'm gonna play God and I'm gonna adjudicate this process and I am gonna seek my pound of flesh. I am gonna seek revenge. But that's not our role. Our role is to fear the Lord who is the judge who will deal with people and we show love. We fear the Lord, we love people and we love God and we obey Him. We do not fear our circumstances, we fear the Lord. That is wisdom. So in your desperation, don't take matters into your own hands. Keep the wisdom of fear and fidelity. And then number four, in your desperation, don't lose your wonder. In your desperation, don't lose your wonder. Verses 15 through 18. Listen to these beautiful truths. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. In your desperation, don't lose your wonder, and firstly, the wonder of God's presence. Don't lose the wonder of his presence. Verses 15 through 18 prove something to us as Christians. It proves to us that God has not promised the righteous ones who find their refuge in him freedom from pain, freedom from affliction. That is not what God promises to us, but notice what this text shows us. Do you see the the anthropomorphic picture of God demonstrated for us here? What does this text tell us that God has? He has eyes to see. He has ears to hear. He has a face to express displeasure at the wickedness that he sees. He is near because he is real and he is with his righteous children. He is present in our affliction, beloved. Do you believe that? That God is present, that he sees, that he sees the deeds that are done against you. Do you believe that he sees it all and he will not forget and he will deal with it in his time? Do you believe that even though he does not remove the circumstances, that he will also not remove himself from you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that in the way that you live? He has not promised to remove the circumstance, but listen, he has promised you himself. What more could we possibly need? We often sing in our services, Christ is sufficient, and how does that song end? We sing it so enthusiastically, and I think we sing it salvifically as well. Christ is enough my Savior and friend. Let me ask you a question. This is a question I have to ask myself often. I've been asking myself it a lot this week. What if someone asked you which one you wanted more in life? Freedom from your circumstance or peace and comfort in your circumstance with the presence of God? There is no third question, by the way. You can't say right now, freedom from my circumstance and the presence of God. That comes later. But right now, what do you desire more? The relationship and the presence of your Savior and friend in the midst of your circumstance or just the freedom of your circumstance? Many of us are married and I know that All of the marriage relationships in here would answer the same way that I would. But I I can honestly say, not, not because I am bragging, but because of the presence of my dear friend and my loved one. If you told me, Dan, you can have a life of ease and freedom from pain for the rest of your days, but you had to live without Becky, I'd say bring on the pain. because I love my wife and I love her presence and I love that relationship. Do you love your relationship with God more than your desire for the freedom of the circumstances? Have you lost the wonder of his presence? He sees, he hears, his face is set, he knows all. Don't lose the wonder of his presence and then verses 19 through 22 don't lose the wonder of his promised plan don't lose the wonder of his promised plan many david says many are the afflictions of the righteous but the lord delivers him out of them all he keeps all his bones not one of them is broken evil shall slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Don't lose the wonder of his promised plan. Inevitably, at some point, someone has asked you, why didn't God, right after the fall of man, just Eliminate all the sin and the evil at that point and make everything right? It's a good question to ask, but when you think about that question, which is really the way we think as humans, right? Just fix it. If God had eradicated evil in the beginning, we would not be here. Trust the promised plan of God despite sin, despite pain, despite affliction. And I think we have to consider the example of Jesus here. Psalm 34 is referenced in the writings of James and Peter. Peter points our eyes towards our example, Jesus, and he reminds us that God did not eradicate evil and then bring us Jesus. God actually allowed evil to afflict and kill his son so that we could have the promises of sin forgiven and everlasting life. The wisdom of God's plan through the foolishness of the gospel. God allows evil to afflict us And He leads us by His wisdom into this suffering to strip us of our sinful self-reliance and to transform us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can thrive and have peace amidst the darkest days of our lives. Do not use your hardship as an excuse to sin, but entrust yourself to the Lord and live righteously in your suffering. Trust His promised plan. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 with me. I've been referencing this, but let's take the time to read this passage. 1 Peter 2. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, and Peter here shows us the application of the reality of our suffering to prepare for it ahead of time. 1 Peter 2, verse 20. Peter says, For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. David had not seen Christ like we have, so I am giving us some New Testament application to this Old Testament psalm. But David is saying here, we must trust the Lord to deliver. We must trust the Lord to not condemn the righteous. We must trust the Lord to keep His servants. And part of the way we exercise that trust is by living the example of his son, Jesus Christ, who was afflicted to the point of death on the cross, which last time I checked, none of us have been afflicted by. And should he allow that evil to continue, should he allow that evil to not lift from your life, he promises to be with you. And should he allow that evil to end your physical life, you will open your eyes and be with him. This is the promised plan. And that is a resounding truth. That is a full truth. That is a final truth. It will not barely come to pass. It will come to pass. You look through again, you scan this psalm, you will notice a lot of superlative words. Words like all, none, never, no. Look at verse one I will bless the Lord at all times. Verse four, he delivered me from all my fears. Verse five, their faces will never be ashamed. You believe that you can be joyful and happy when your God allows you to go through that? Absolutely. I can be radiant just as a mom whose son or daughter has come back from college, as many of you mothers were this morning. You were radiant. I can be unashamed, unashamed, my God. Verse six, who saved him out of all his troubles. Verse nine, for to those who fear him, there is no want. Verse 10, those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Verse 17, the Lord delivers the righteous out of all their troubles. Verse 19, he delivers the righteous out of all their afflictions. Verse 22, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Delivered from all fears, all troubles, all afflictions, Does God always deliver the righteous? I skipped a verse, verse 20. Actually, look back at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Verse 20 reminds us of someone, doesn't it? In the Gospel of John, John uses verse 20 of the 34th Psalm to express the fulfillment of this verse. You you remember the scene, the three crosses, so that they wouldn't be hanging there during the the holy day, the Sabbath. They would crush the legs of the crucified, and they come up to the the thief on the left, they crush his legs. They go to the thief on the right, they crush his legs. But Christ has already expired and his bones are not crushed. And John says he keeps all of his bones, and this was the fulfillment of this verse. But is that all that this verse meant in in David's writing? Is that really just what David was writing for so that it could be fulfilled in Christ one day? I've been thinking a lot about verse 20 as we conclude here. The, The word bones have all sorts of context and stories in the scripture, but I think there's... No more famous mention of bones in the Bible but Joseph's. Do you remember what Joseph said at the end of his life in Genesis 50, 24 and 25 when he was about to die? He says, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. What? What? Why are your bones so important, Joseph? Well, they took him seriously. Exodus 13, 19. Moses fulfills this exhortation. He takes the bones of Joseph with them into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And it's not just in Genesis and Exodus that this account happens. At the end of the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 32, it's mentioned again that as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt they buried them at Shechem in the peace of the land that Jacob bought and then in the book of Hebrews the New Testament book of Hebrews it says this by faith Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones how is keeping Joseph's bones an act of faith (laughs) I've been thinking about this this week You know, we just went through in our ABF, Ezekiel, and you could probably include Ezekiel 37 here, this picture of a valley of dead people, but their bones are intact. Something of them remains, and God tells Ezekiel to prophesy, and we know the story. Flesh comes onto the bones, and they live, and they are, in a sense, resurrected. And if you go back to Psalm 34, verse 20, I believe that we are getting a taste of the promise of resurrection. God keeps you, God controls your circumstances, God knows exactly where you are and God will restore you to everlasting life. There will be a resurrection, but to be a resurrection, there may indeed be a death. So, even if evil overwhelms you, remember the promise is that you would not be unafflicted. The promise was not that you would not die. The promise was not that you would not suffer in the flesh, but the promise is that God will keep all of your bones and God will not forget you. God will bring you in a sense, just as Joseph longed for, to the promised land in the presence of himself. That was the message of John. Not just that Jesus would die, but that Jesus would rise again. So back to the question I asked, does God always deliver the righteous? The answer is a resounding yes. From all fears, all troubles, all afflictions, God will keep the righteous' bones. Not even one will be broken which means that there will be fears, there will be troubles, there will be afflictions, there will be desperation, there will even be death, but there will be a resurrection. And God will deal with it all and deliver his people, not in our preferred timing or our preferred way, but according to the wonder of his promised plan. So in your desperation, do not lose the wonder of God's presence in this life or the wonder of his promised plan for the life to come. Father, thank you for the encouragement of the very broken and transparent David. May we, Lord, in our desperation, but also, Lord, in our good times, worship you, witness of you, demonstrate wisdom through a fearful faithfulness and obedience, and the wonder of your presence and your promised plan through this life and may we love you not because of what we get from you but because of who you are and what you have done in jesus name we ask amen